This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Wisconsin 3rd District Representative Ron Kind. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS Inc. is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. CHS is diversified in energy, grains, foods, and committed to growing their business through domestic and global operations. More with Wisconsin Congressman Ron Kind next here on the Open Mic. What does it mean to be relevant in today's global agriculture marketplace? To CHS, it means having the people and facilities in place to deliver U.S. grain to a feedlot in South Korea or investing in energy production and distribution to help ensure dependable fuel supplies for our local communities. In fact, we've invested more than $1.4 billion on our owner's behalf to make sure we stay relevant now and end of the future. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Wisconsin 3rd District Representative Ron Kine was one of the few in his party to support trade promotion authority for the president. Congressman Kind says it's way too soon to tell how legislators will receive a Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement potentially later this year. Well, it's still a product under negotiation, and members of Congress need to stay engaged with the Obama administration, our USTR team, Ambassador Froman, to make sure that we're reaching the negotiating objectives that we want to see in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to be at the table establishing the rules of trade with countries that we're already trading with, but with the idea of elevating standards up to where we are. So we have a level playing field for our farmers, for our workers, for our businesses to effectively compete in this global marketplace. It's 40% of the global economy. It's the fastest-growing region in the world, the Pacific Rim nation. Of course we got to be in that tent. Of course we should be there competing. And I'm working hard to be able to expand trade opportunities, especially for our agricultural producers at home, so we have an easier time of being able to export into this fast-growing region. Those who are pro-trade, especially toward this Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, quote the growth of the middle class, the potential for that growth as one of the key reasons to be involved. I think it's true because you look at trade-related jobs, they pay on average 18% more uh, than other jobs. But it's important that we establish the rules that do level the playing field. So it's easier for us to be able to export products and goods and and food products that we make and grow right here in the United States. You know, by attacking the trade barriers that exist against us right now, making it difficult for us to get into these other marketplaces. And oftentimes, forcing companies to have to locate in those countries just to do business there. So that's a large part of what these trade negotiations are meant to accomplish. Reduce the tariff and non-tariff barriers uh, to the goods, the products, the foods that we're making and growing here at home to make it easier to export abroad so we can keep those good-paying jobs right here in the United States. You were one of the few in your party that did support trade. What do you think kept others from being on board, and will they carry that attitude into votes on uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and perhaps TTIP and others? Well, I think there's confusion between trade and trade agreements. You know, I, I remind my colleagues that of the 11 nations that we're negotiating in Trans-Pacific Partnership, we're already trading with them all, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore. And so the question going forward is what the rules of trade are going to look like because the alternative is having a trading system with no rules at all or possibly at some point with China's rules dominating. And if it's no rules or China's rules, that's a race to the bottom, and we're not going to do very well in that environment. 
So to me, it makes sense that we're there trying to negotiate the standards and the rules that we then can enforce and, and be able to hold other countries accountable over. And by turning our back on that opportunity, we're really then deciding that we're going to continue trading with no rules or China's rules. And I don't understand that reasoning at all. What counsel would you offer for Ambassador Froman in the latter hours of the TPP and what they would bring to Congress? Well, I think right now all eyes are on Japan and Canada. They have got to open up their markets. Uh, Japan with auto and agriculture, uh, Canada with agriculture, especially dairy. I mean, I come from Wisconsin, uh, the second largest dairy producing state in the nation. For us to export any of our dairy products into Canada today, we face on average a 240% tariff. That's not fair. That's not level. And Canada knows what we're asking them to do is to open up their market so that there is more fair competition. Japan is the same way. Japan is the fourth largest economy in the world. And yet what has held, I think, their growth back for many years is the closed economic uh, society that they've created there. This is an opportunity for them to move forward on the economic reforms that I think they need to be more competitive and to support the growth that they need. But one way is reducing a lot of the artificial barriers that they've erected, creating a very closed society. And one way to do that is through this trade agreement with us. 300 members of the House of Representatives voted to completely repeal the country of origin labeling law. The Senate is still wrestling with that now. What were your thoughts on that vote, and should we fear retaliation from our neighbor to the north and to the south? Well, you know, I, I supported it uh, because we had four adverse decisions that ruled against us, so you know, we had to take some action. But there's another step to this, and that's requiring Canada in this instance to show proof of damage. Right now, they throw out a very large figure. We now are challenging that through arbitration so that they have to make an offer of proof of what the actual damage are. And I, my guess is it's substantially less than what they were initially calling for. And that's the whole point of the arbitration process right now. But we can still move forward with voluntary labeling. You know, I'm encouraging a lot of our producers and processors back home in Wisconsin, given the reputation we've developed, to do that. I also have a lot of organic uh, farmers and organic co-ops in my area, and they label uh, already. So I think consumers want that choice. They want more information. So I'm hoping that this adverse ruling doesn't hold us back in that regard. We've not seen to the full house yet, but there has been discussion of the Pompeo bill that would offer uh, a national label, a national standard for crops that might contain an ingredient from a genetically enhanced crop. Knowing that you founded and co-chair the Organic Caucus, right. how do you how do you see this debate, and and where and how should it come before Congress? Well, I hope this is driven by science and scientifically based facts in that. And that, I think, ultimately leads to consensus building and then good policy uh, from it. And I know there's been some concern and dispute about GMOs out there, but there just uh, is not the scientific research or proof to show that there's any adverse human health effects uh, to it. Uh, you know, but that's fine. And again, consumers uh, have a right to choose and they have a right to know whether it's GMO or whether it's uh, organic product and that. But I would hope that ultimately when it comes to policymaking, it's driven more by science rather than by speculation or how, how one person might feel. When we think about the Environmental Protection Agency, a lot of attention has been drawn to the definition that they offered of what is a water of the U.S. Now they call it the clean water rule. How do you respond to what the EPA has proposed? How would it affect Wisconsin? Should this Congress step in? 
and clip the wings of that agency? Well, I think EPA needs to be careful that they don't overreach and don't come out with a proposed rule that's overly restrictive or unnecessary or, quite frankly, ridiculous. I know in my conversations with EPA, Gina McCarthy in particular, they're being very careful to exempt production agriculture and family farms from this uh, agriculture overall from this uh, rule. Uh, And we haven't seen any finality to it, but I know a lot of people are weighing in right now raising points of concern that maybe has escaped EPA or they haven't thought through all that well. And I want to be constructive in that process so that this ultimately makes sense. I mean, we all need quality water supplies in any community. It's hard to grow a sustainable and healthy community without it. But you also need uh, to be practical in your approach on how best to accomplish that. I've been one of the big proponents supporting the conservation title of these farm bills, and they are voluntary. They are incentive-based land and water conservation programs that, quite frankly, our, our producing farmers are asking for, and working in partnership with, uh, with uh, NRCS and some of the technical assistance that is provided out in the field. Uh, and I know in Wisconsin, given the area that I represent, a lot of rolling hills and bluffs and steep slopes, it's important for us to protect our topsoil. I do not want to see our number one export uh, product being our precious topsoil from Wisconsin slipping into the river system and ultimately flowing down the Mississippi River. Should the EPA start over on that reg? Well, I think EPA is now responding to some of the concerns and criticisms that were raised, uh, and, and I think they need clear definition as far as what they're trying to accomplish and I know they've been working on language that would that would explicitly exempt production agriculture from from these concerns. Minnesota and Iowa heavily heavily damaged by avian influenza. Wisconsin also affected as well. How do you see the relationship between state response and federal response for avian influenza, especially knowing that this could be around for several more months? Yeah, you know, I had four uh, farms uh, specifically in my congressional district that were impacted. And of course, there was a local state response, but also getting Avis involved, too. And Secretary uh, Vilsack has been very responsive, first with, first with the indemnity payments for the destroyed flocks that had to occur, but also trying to move forward with more research and trying to develop uh, uh, a, a, a cure uh, for avian flu. Uh, it's my understanding that this virus is quickly mutating, and so trying to find some vaccine for it is a real challenge. But USDA just this past week indicated that they're getting close to developing such a vaccine. But that brings in a lot of trade implications, too. I don't want to see us put in a position of mandatory vaccines that then would prohibit the export of poultry uh, uh, to other countries. And I think other countries are looking for certain advantages to to take advantage of uh, that we need to be careful about. You and other members in the Congress worked long and hard to see a new farm bill approved. First, I would ask, from the dairy policy perspective, is the safety net adequate for your farmers, or are there changes that need to be made with regard to the dairy producer? Well, I think there's a couple aspects there. One is feed costs, and and that now is being included in the overall uh, a dairy insurance program, uh, but the other aspect is what to do with the roller coaster that most dairy producers find themselves. Obviously, milk is down again this year after a couple of years of strong numbers, uh, and being able to weather those dips and valleys and that that do occur with uh, milk prices and dairy overall is one of the great challenges. And our farmers keep asking for greater price stability. 
I think one way of accomplishing that is by opening up these markets overseas so we have a more vibrant and strong export industry that can deal with excess supply or excess production that does occur in our country from time to time. But the whole you know, milk insurance program, it's still a work in progress, still being implemented. I know in my area we had about a 58% participation rate. That was also including the first $4 that was free for the milk insurance program. So I think there, you know, a lot of the producers are still wrapping their head around it as far as making the calculations of whether or not this is something that makes sense, if this fits into the risk management portfolio, and I think it's just too early to tell. If we follow the progression of farm policy from the 80s through the 90s and even to today, a lot greater shift and a tremendous shift toward risk management. There are some who were very pleased with the uh, policy that was approved, saying it was the best that could be done. I think that you and some others would like to see some changes to farm programs. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been a critic of some of the big taxpayer-subsidized uh, direct payment programs that have gone on in the past and, and how that ultimately gets distributed because the bulk of it was going to a few but very large agribusinesses and not that beneficial to family farmers. And I was trying to bring greater parity or equity to, to all of that, but also to try to make it more market-sensitive. I think whenever the government's trying to mess with the supply and demand issues, the marketplace is just too strong and too fast-moving for any government program to try to keep up with that. So the more market-driven signals that are given to our farmers and producers, I think the better off they're ultimately going to be. And then you need to complement that with various risk management tools so that they can hedge their risk. It is an incredibly volatile business and so many factors that are outside uh, their control. I think one of the improvements of the last Farm Bill is we did do away with the direct payment program. These were taxpayer subsidies that went out regardless of production, regardless of price. It was all based on past history, and it got to the point where that was a very tough program to try to defend and justify. And so eliminating that, I thought, was a step in the right direction. In the appropriation process coming later this summer, will you see an opportunity to make changes to crop insurance? Uh, not a lot because I know uh, farm uh, committee members are reluctant to open up the farm bill for periodic annual debates, which the appropriation bill might do. But what I would like to, and what I have called for in the past, is just greater transparency of where the crop insurance subsidy uh, premium payments are going. Right now, that's prohibited. And I think the American taxpayer deserves to know how their dollars are being used and spent. And we lack that type of transparency in the crop insurance program right now. And I think in order to justify a program and to build support for it, you got to have transparency so people know what it's all about and who ultimately is benefiting from these programs. Congressman, we're just a few months into a new year and, and leadership in Washington in the Congress. How do you see progress thus far? You've tackled some big issues, but there are some huge issues that are ahead. You know, there are some big issues. Uh, you know, we were talking more specifically about the farm programs, but there are larger issues that drive production agriculture. Access to affordable and quality health care is a major issue that still confronts farmers out there, and we need to be working with them in order to make sure that they do have access to that health care uh, that they need. This is one of the most dangerous occupations that we have in the country, and farmers need to get coverage some way, somehow. We've got uh, retirement uh, issues, too, that I, on the Ways and Means Committee, have been focused on, making it easier for farmers or small business owners, and I include farmers as small business owners, make it easier for them to save you know, for their own retirement needs. A lot of them have their wealth built in the land and, 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 
and the capital that they've invested in. And another issue is the generational change that's going to occur. The average age of a farmer in Wisconsin, for instance, is 58 today. So we need that next new young generation uh, to be able to step in and start taking over these operations or looking at production agriculture as a career choice uh, for them. So I think we still face some challenges in the Farm Bill with the New Beginner Farmer Program to see how well it's working and whether there are things we can tweak or build upon to make it even more successful. Senator McConnell has suggested he doesn't see comprehensive tax reform in this Congress with this administration. What do you see, and with regard to tax extenders, per se, Section 179 and and others, uh, do you see anything like that coming in a timely fashion in this year? Well, I would hope that we can come together, find some consensus to reform the antiquated tax code that we have today. It's way too complex. It's holding us back. It's leaving us less competitive globally. And if there is consensus already, it's that we have a monstrosity of a code. It's not working very well. And we need to simplify it. And we need to try to lower the rates and and expand the base at the same time. But we also need to be careful in, in how we do that. You mentioned the 179 uh, section for uh, manufacturing purposes and also accelerated depreciation I would put in that category. This is something that directly benefits our family farmers. Uh, It's been an important part of being able to reduce their tax liability overall. And so certain cause of completely eliminating that, we need to be careful what the impact that's going to have in farm country and for for small business owners overall. Congressman Kine, we want to thank you for spending time with us. Uh, We wish you much success in the days and the weeks and years to come, but uh, the microphone is yours, sir. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate it. And back home, you know, we're wrapping up our annual June Dairy Day celebration. It's a way for us to spend a little time on the family farm on the weekend with a farm host having a community dairy breakfast, get six, seven, eight thousand people showing up. But it's a way for us to spend time on the farm to show our appreciation for our family farmers, the hard work that they put in, where our food security system really comes from, and uh, a way to continue to support a a vitally important industry. Production agriculture is still the biggest industry we have in Wisconsin. It employs more people directly or indirectly than any other business that we have. It's been a part of our DNA for some time. And as a kid growing up, I had a couple uncles who were dairy farmers, so my summer vacations were spent on the farm, working with my cousins, doing chores. I've learned to appreciate the hard work that goes into it, and we need to support them uh, the best way we can. And that's always been one of my major callings here in Congress. And I appreciate the chance to be able to sit down and discuss these issues with you today, Jeff. Our thanks to this week's guest, Wisconsin 3rd District Representative Ron Kind. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc., a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States, diversified in energy, grains, and foods, and committed to growing their business through domestic and global operations. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.